You're listening to the Private Citizen, a podcast for critical thinkers. This is episode 136 for Wednesday, the 21st of December, 2022. The Twitter Files, part two. Hello, everybody. I'm your host. My name is Fab. I'm coming to you from the Fab Industry offices in Düsseldorf in Germany. And I hope you're having a good day. Um, thanks. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening once again. Today, we will talk uh, about the Twitter files again. This is my second episode, uh, part two, on uh, the Twitter files revelations. As I mentioned before, these are not the parts that the authors uh, have used to disclaim this, uh, to report this on Twitter. Um, this is just my second episode. That's why I'm calling it part two. Today we will be talking, as I also kind of uh, hinted at last time, about the Hunter Biden laptop story. That's going to be our topic for today. But before we get into that, let's quickly uh, talk about the plans uh, for the rest of the year for the show here. So um, I am planning to publish another episode soon that will be a f feedback episode or a producer feedback episode because um, there's a lot lots of feedback that you've sent me um, and I want to get to that and I you know I've been planning to dedicate a special episode to that so we'll be doing that and um, then there'll be a last episode for the year uh, as I always do where I kind of recap all the episodes in the year and you know the show notes will have a big list of, of all the episodes in the year grouped by topics and stuff like that speaking of the show notes if you go to privatecitizen.press you can find the show notes for this episode which are copious uh, they are big so um, if you want to read along if you want further links please go to privatecitizen.press and yeah I think that's that's all the all the housekeeping we have. I think that's everything um, on uh, on on what the plans are. Uh, of course, I didn't have uh, I didn't publish as many episodes this year as I wanted to, um, but I'll be addressing that in the end of year episode as well. And um, I uh, you know I'll be addressing my plans. I still have plans to uh, catch up on all of this um, as best as I can. Um, so I'm not I'm not planning to produce less episodes or anything like that. So um, you can be uh, sure of that. Thanks everybody for supporting me um, throughout this year. It's been somewhat difficult, but mostly because you know I've also had a lot of holiday after like you know the previous year with them. You know it was uh, very very few. Um, there were very few holidays. There was a lot of lots this year, and that's basically what happens. But you know, I'll I'll get into that at the end of the year wrap up episode as well. Let's now uh, talk about uh, the topic at hand. Um, you know, let's talk about why we're here today. So today we will talk about how Twitter has suppressed um, the Hunter Biden laptop story. It's getting a bit of oil gray here um, to get us going. <laughs> um, yes, how uh, Twitter has um, suppressed that story and what the FBI had uh, to do with that. I just just occurs to me. I forgot in the housekeeping. Of course, there won't be any. There's no live stream of this episode. There won't be any live streams of the other episode this year. Uh, the other episodes this year. I'm, I'm um, hard pressed as it is to get these episodes out to you, so I can't really do live streams at the moment. I've got a lot on my hands, 
I hope you understand. But anyway, let's get uh, to the topic at hand here. Um, so the Biden laptop story, I previously talked about this. Um, we, I talked about it with Mike when we analyzed the 2020 election. That was episode 48. And then in episode 111, um, I gave an update on the story um, that was uh, earlier this year in March when he basically learned that um, the story was factual. Um why why is the whole thing such an important event it's just you know it was the first time really um where we saw a large social media platform censoring legitimate reporting from a major newspaper they've been deleting stories of you know blogs and you know unimportant basically people like you and me you know like me like freelance people or bloggers who were reporting things that you know um might have not been factually uh, correct or might have been uh, factually correct but weren't like you know um uh, recognized as such like in the in the opinion mainstream so to speak and um you know so they have been deleting these stories uh, for a while but this was the first time that a major newspaper we're talking one of the oldest newspapers in the US they're kind of like a yellow press newspaper but still um, you know, where, where their story was suppressed. And um, we now learn that not only did Twitter just do this unilaterally, they did this because the FBI primed them to be to do that. So the, the FBI, an intelligence service, was behind this. This is a major story. Uh, to me, one of the biggest stories of the year. But in case you are not aware of the background of the Hunter Biden laptop story, even though I talked about it before, I think it's worth recapping that at first and, and, and doing a, a primer. If you know what's going on, you know, I'm sorry, but there, there are, um, you know, there are chapters in the show notes, private citizen press, and also in the podcast file. So if you're a podca- podcatcher, um, podcast client um, can use chapters, then you can just jump ahead if you want. But I want to give a recap of the story because there might be people or I think there will probably I'm, I'm pretty sure there are people listening to this episode right now who are not as aware of this because it was you know with the reporting in the mainstream media which was honestly abysmal um, nobody can really blame them um, you know there's still lots of people and we're talking millions of people out there who think the Hunter Biden laptop was a fake and was um, was a Russian hacking operation and that is not the case, but that has not been widely reported. So I am quoting, I will be quoting uh, a lot uh, right now from um, Michael Schellenberger, who did the latest Twitter files uh, revelations that we'll talk about later where all this FBI stuff comes out. But before he talks about that, he has a very good, I think, um, recap and an up- up-to-date recap um, on on the Hunter Biden laptop story because, you know, that's also what he's reporting on. And there's a link in the show notes, Private Citizen Press, to his substack to this article, which is well worth a complete read. But let's um, quote from Michael Schellenberger here from his, um, you know, basically uh, in a nutshell uh, um, uh, writing about what the Hunter Biden laptop story was. The story begins in December 2019 when a Delaware computer store owner named John Paul or J.P. Mac Isaac contacted the FBI about a laptop that Hunter Biden had left with him. And we're talking Hunter Biden is the son of um, 
Joe Biden, who at the time was running uh, to be U.S. president, right? Um, on December the 9th, 2019, the FBI issued a subpoena for and takes Hunter Biden's laptop. It likely would have taken a few hours for the FBI to confirm that the laptop had belonged to Hunter Biden. Indeed, it took only a few days for the journalist Peter Schweitzer to prove it. And yet the FBI did nothing to investigate the many signs of criminal activity revealed by the emails and other documents on the laptop. So I think before I go on with quoting Mayor Schellenberger here, um, it's it's worth explaining how Peter Schweitzer, who got a, a copy of the laptop later on, and other journalists um, have proven that this laptop is authentic. Um, the, this is something that, you know, the, the WAPO and the New York Times could have done at the time, but didn't do. They They did now, and, you know, they... Recently, um, also uh, wrote about this was a CBS or I don't know somebody you know some some I think it was CBS. Uh, I talked about this on the show as well. Who said yeah we've authenticated this now and it took them like two years, um, which is complete bullshit because Schweitzer did this in like a week or two, uh, and it's relatively easy how they figured out that this laptop was authentic. First of, it looked very authentic. There were a lot of emails, like we're talking tens of thousands of emails who looked very authentic. So if you were going to fake that, that is a monumental undertaking. It could be done, but you know it's 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 already looking relatively unlikely. You know you have w- what looks like ten thousands of uh, authentic looking emails. It's very hard to fake just the volume of it. But um, they did several things. So they, 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 on, on, on behalf of Congress, uh, the Secret Service uh, released um, travel information about uh, on, on Hunter Biden because um, when this, like, we're talking data on this laptop um, pertains to when Joe Biden was vice president. And Joe Biden, obviously, being vice president, was under the protection of the secret service um, and so were members of his family that is usual right when you when you're president then your kids and your your uh, your your spouse or whoever like your relatives that are close to you will be also under the protection of the secret service so that no um for example no foreign power can influence them or kidnap them and then influence the you know president or vice president of the US. so um the secret service had information on at that time you know, during the vice presidency of Joe Biden, where Hunter Biden was traveling. And there was a request in Congress for this, and they released the travel information. So um, Schweitzer and other journalists checked this laptop and checked, like, you know, when Hunter Biden was writing emails and saying, okay, I'm in Hong Kong right now, was he actually in Hong Kong? And it all lined up. Um, It all lined up with the the travel information. I mean, this is not proof, but, you know, it's a pretty good indication that, that like this is either a good fake or um, as Schweitzer says at the time the, the information only came out at a point publicly where it was the time frame was too short to actually fake all these emails which I you know I can't speak to how correct that is but there were other ways like they authenticated this in other ways um, there, there was money mentioned um, there were actually there was information there's a lot of like all of this money we're talking about that Hunter Biden received um, all of this public um, so they checked all the money like you know when I when Hunter Biden says oh um, I'm getting like five million dollars did he actually get five million dollars and you know that could also be authenticated and and then the easiest and probably most sure way to authenticate is they had the emails right they had emails from Hunter Biden to other people. So what they did is they checked with people mentioned in these emails um, to um, see if th- so. So 
a person writes an email to Hunter Biden. It ends up in Hunter Biden's email account. They go and check with that person if that person has actually sent this very email. And they checked with several people who, who said, yes, um, I had these conversations who um, assured them that, you know, these were emails they've sent. So there, you know, you could verify that some of the emails in there were right. And it still could have been a fake. I mean, this is, I've talked about facts and the problem with facts and, you know, the scientific method on the show before, how nothing is like the truth 100%, you know, how you can only have like, with especially with an, with an investigation like this, you only can have like facts that point at a certain thing, but you can't like completely prove it. But for what we know now, this is borne out. Um, as far as we know, everything that was in the post story based on this laptop um, was factually correct. Um, and I mean, there was there was other stuff in here where like this was pretty clearly Hunter Biden's laptop. Um, I mean, there was naked photos of him. There was photos of him with, um, with women. I think some journalists actually checked with these women if this happens and that has been corroborated. There were penis pictures of Hunter Biden. <laughs> there was all kind of stuff. Um, so we know now that this stuff is correct. Like this is actual factual information and this is how the journalists uh, done this, which I find interesting. That's just an interesting way to uh, look at, you know, journalistic procedure. Anyway, let's continue with Schellenberger's uh, recap of this story. Um, after waiting patiently for months to hear back from the FBI, Mac Isaac in August 2020 emailed Rudy Giuliani, you know, who was... I think was he campaign manager? He was he was deeply involved in the Trump campaign, uh, and gave him a copy of the laptop. We're talking. He I think so. What had happened is Hunter Biden had given his laptop to a computer repair shop. Apparently, the hard drive was broken, or the laptop would boot, or whatever. And this guy, in the process of fixing it, made a copy of the hard drive. So I think he gave the physical laptop to the FBI, but he still had a copy of the hard drive. Right, which is what he later gave Giuliani. Apparently, Biden never picked up that laptop. I can't believe how people are skeptical of the story, but that because that sounds like really weird. Just handing off your laptop, never picking it up again. But you have to remember that guy's rich, right? He probably didn't care about the laptop. He is not very smart, as far as I can tell. Um, I don't know if that's because he's <laughs> massively doing drugs or something. I don't know. But like, you know, there's other things in this laptop where you can see the guy's not very. Um, you know, with it at times. So anyway, so anyway, this guy gives the a copy of the laptop to Rudy Giuliani, right? Giuliani was under FBI surveillance at the time, and thus FBI, uh, the FBI almost certainly knew what had happened. In early October, Giuliani shared the laptop's hard drive and its contents with the New York Post. So, um. This is this is important, right? Because this this will come up um, later when we talk about what the FBI then did. This is why they did it. So they um, they knew, right? Because they were surveilling uh, Giuliani. Uh, they knew that uh, that he had gotten a copy of the laptop and. They themselves had a copy of the laptop, right? They subpoenaed the laptop. They just never did anything with it for whatever reasons, even though, um, you know, journalists like Schweitzer who have looked at the laptop said this is, there is, 
there is clear indication of criminal activity on this hard drive, um, which apparently doesn't only um, concern corruption, right? Um, so, so the issue is that I mean, the, the the corruption question is just follows. I mean, Joe Biden was vice president at the time for Obama. And his son, Hunter Biden, who uh, got kicked out of the military, um, was a lawyer but wasn't really successful, I think, um, founded a consultancy and got money from foreign actors, like people close to the Chinese government, people close to the Ukrainian government, um, for, 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 for nothing, basically. So, you know, the, 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 the case that is most published is that he had a seat on the board of Burisma, which is a Ukrainian, uh, ener- huge Ukrainian energy company, and got, I think, was it $50 million for, for, for this job, where he didn't even turn up. Like, he didn't even go up to meetings. He, did, he didn't even, as far as we know, he didn't even have an office, I think. Like, he just was on the board, didn't, as far as we can tell, nothing, and got $50 million for it. So the theory, which, of course, you can't prove, but this is the corruption argument, is that these people gave him money for access to his dad, right? So he would influence his dad, who was in charge uh, of foreign policy, especially on China and of Ukraine, according to Obama at the time. Um, you know that that he was like, you know, they were they were through Hunter Biden influencing his decisions. That is the idea. Uh, you can call it a conspiracy theory, but I think it's a pretty pretty logical idea because otherwise what would he have gotten the money for and you've never you know explained what he got the money for right normal normally when politicians are you know confronted with these allegations they will say what they what they did for the company or whatever uh, and he never hunter Biden never did that uh, but there's supposed to be other uh legally uh like probably uh criminally uh implicating information on the laptop uh including of some sexual things but like you know i don't know anyway so the fbi never did anything with that um so yeah um so so they never did anything but they knew what was on it and and they now know that giuliani has a copy and giuliani of course you know shared uh, continuing to quote here shared his laptop's hard drive and its contents with the new york post then a series of strange events occurred. Shortly before 7 p.m. ET on October 13th, Hunter Biden's lawyer, George Messiris, emailed McIsaac. Hunter and Messiris had just learned from the New York Post that its story about the laptop would be published the next day. Two hours later, an FBI special agent in San Francisco named Elvis Chan sends 10 documents to Twitter's then head of site's integrity, UL Roth, through Teleporter, a one-way communications channel from the FBI to Twitter. The next day, October 14, 2020, the New York Post runs its explosive story revealing the business dealings of President Joe Biden's son, Hunter. The article was accurate and has stood the test of time. And yet, within hours, Twitter and other social media companies censored the NY Post article, preventing it from spreading and, more importantly, undermining its credibility in the minds of many Americans. So, so this is what happened, right? This is, this is the backgrounder. Um, Hunter Biden left a laptop in a repair shop. Um, This was, um, you know, picked up. This laptop was picked up by the FBI. Um, Then the FBI never gets back to the guy they got it from. 
Uh, he's like, what the fuck's going on? I've looked through this. There's like some stuff that looks um, illegal to me or like even only questionable. Like, why aren't they doing anything? The guy obviously is close to the Republican Party, um, has read that, you know, Giuliani is looking for shit like this on Joe Biden or his family and then gives it to Giuliani. Giuliani in a classic October surprise, you know, kind of trying to discredit the uh, presidential candidate just before the election, um, then gives it to the New York Post. Apparently, he shopped it around other newspapers who wouldn't take it uh, because, you know, obviously this was pro-Trump. Um, and yeah, so the Post publishes it uh, and then the FBI knows about this and the FBI uh, will then uh, spring into action. But we'll get at what the FBI did and what that means a bit later. First, I want to look at how Twitter, you know, the Twitter side, how Twitter has suppressed the story. So this was actually, um, I think, the first installment of the Twitter files. This was like Matt Taibbi's immediate uh, uh, story out of the gate um, how Twitter like before we even knew how deep the FBI was involved it's interesting to see how Twitter um, dealt with this story so to understand Twitter had basically built a system or had created a system whereby political actors in Washington could contact the company and get like tweets and accounts suspended, deleted, vis vi you know, visibility filtered, whatever. And this was not like a, a ticketing system or, or whatever. This was like built on personal contacts. And there were contacts to the Biden campaign and to the Trump campaign, but almost all of this action that was taken by Twitter was taken on behalf of the Biden campaign, which is, I've talked about this before, uh, due to Twitter's... Uh, you know, like many Silicon Valley companies, uh, the Twitter employees and especially the upper levels of management are almost all Democrat voters. Um, so uh, as, as Taibbi uh, says here in his Twitter uh, thread on this, by 2020, requests from connected actors to delete tweets were routine. One executive would write to another, quote, more to review from the Biden team, end quote. The reply would come back, quote, handled. Um and you know this is this is because you know obviously the staffers are um you know politically aligned they 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 were thinking this was the right thing to do um so basically when the post story came out twitter was already involved in dealing handling things for team biden um and if you look through this the the twitter files like this this you know, links all private citizen press in the show notes through Taibi's stuff. Um, you can see um, the internal decisions, how they are debating um, if they want to if they want to block this block this story, and when they do, they decide to do this on 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 a uh, ruling of hacked material. So at the time, Twitter had a hacked materials policy. Um, that meant that you couldn't post anything on Twitter um, th that came out of a, out of a hack. Basically, this is goes down to goes back to the 2016 election and you know Hillary Clinton's emails, which were leaked by WikiLeaks, 
uh, which were hacked material, right? Uh, interestingly, Twitter, the, these these executives involved, your Roth, uh, Vijaya, Gaddy, other people, do all of this without, as we know now, without Twitter, or at the time Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey knowing about this. Um, so they decided by themselves without even understanding the the implications, like the free speech implications, that they would delete journalistic reporting, and as we know now, factual journalistic reporting, by one of the oldest newspapers in the US, because it was based on, quote, hacked materials, which is, of course, I mean, this, this is, on the face of it, already bullshit based on hit, on Twitter's policy, right? Because Twitter's policy was you cannot post hacked materials, i.e. you can't post a link to the laptop of the Hunter Biden stuff, right? To the to the file, to the to the to the image of the hard drive. I understand like that policy I can understand. I'm not hundred percent down with it, but I can understand. But what they deleted was a news story that was based on reporting by journalists on this material. The material was not linked. Right, it it was like Glenn Greenwald reporting on the Snowden materials, right? There wasn't, they didn't link the the Snowden archive, so there were no hacked materials here. Like this decision already um, is bullshit, and they they saw internally that this was probably not going to fly, uh, but then still decided to do so and decided to just interpret like we talked about last time. On, on my first episode on the Twitter files, you know, they kind of decided to to do um, to bend their internal rule, uh, their, their internal rules to um, comply with the, you know, to to basically justify the decisions. They didn't look at the rules and the rules say this. Now we have to make this decision. They made a decision and then tried to fit the rules around it. Um, and at this point, I have to interject and I have to say something talk about something very important and there's links to this in the show notes private citizen press there's a box that's very important in the show notes um, with some links that some people might want to read and there is a misconception in the public and these days and this is very scary also among journalists um, there's some journalists I know personally who have said things and how I like as, as people actually, you know, also some people I've worked with who've said publicly recently um, things that makes me feel they don't understand this, what I'm about to talk about. And that's this is weird because some of these people are the same people who are very gung-ho on reporting on the Snowden situation and, and that's kind of the same thing. And what I'm talking about is here's how journalism works. Um, this is true for pretty much any country that I know that has um, what I would call a free press. The reasonings are different. They're different in the UK. They're different in Germany. I'm gonna. This is a US story, so I'm gonna talk about the US reasoning. Um, and this is something that's been upheld by the Supreme Court several times. Um, in the US, the First Amendment to the Constitution means that a journalist is allowed to report on material that have been um, received from an illegal source, right? So if uh, there's a rich person and somebody breaks into their home and steals some materials and gives those materials to a journalist 
And these materials reveal that the rich person has been engaged in illegal activity. And the journalist will then uh, deem this important to the public and write a story about it. They're not doing anything illegal. They're completely within their rights under law to do this. The journalist does not have to care where the information comes from. And good journalists generally don't. That is not the job of a journalist. It is important to understand where they come from because what the job of the journalist is to two things. Well, aside from writing a story. They need to figure out if the information is factually correct or is likely factual correct. And they need to figure out if the story is um, you know, important for the public to know. That is kind of the burden. That's kind of the, 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 the hurdle uh, any story, any journalistic story has to jump. Let's take that as a grant. Let's not talk about the second part. Journalists need to figure out if the information is factually correct. Um, and so, they, so if they come from, let's say, a burglary or whatever, a journalist would want to know this because that would actually make this, the, the materials, uh, make it more likely for them to be real. Um, but they don't care about the fact that they were retrieved illegally and they shouldn't, right? So I know this for my, this is a little bit different, but from my personal experience as an IT uh, uh, security journalist, right? So somebody writes to you, somebody you don't know, somebody is probably anonymous, some, some security researcher will, will write to me, let's say via Twitter, DM, happens a lot, and say, look, I found the security vulnerability in this huge, uh, in this in this service of this huge company, and he sends me all the materials. Right? I don't care if they broke a law by like you know hacking, so to speak, the servers uh, to figure out the security vulnerability. My job is to figure out is is this important for the public to know, and secondly, is this true? Are these security vulnerabilities actual? Um, uh, do they exist, right? And there's in Germany, there's been rulings, the same in the US actually too, uh, whereas sometimes as a journalist, I will have to go and check if the security vulnerability is actually there. I cannot ask a company because at the time, at the moment I ask them, they will not answer me and first close the security vulnerability, therefore making it impossible for me to do my job and prove that they were actually there. So I have to take the information secretly from this uh, source from, let's say, some security uh, analyst or some, you know, some hacker or whatever you want to call them, security researcher, and then um, I have to check. And sometimes I'll have to actually try the security vulnerability. I will, of course, not access, like, you know, get any copy any data. I will not change any files on the server. I will, I will not do anything malicious. I'm just trying to replicate the security vulnerability. Now, under law. Under German law, that is already illegal, right? You can go to j- you you can go to jail. Uh, I think the minimum sentence is two years um, for that. But it's been consistently ruled that if a journalist does this in their um, like it's still an illegal act, but if a journalist does it as part of their job with the right intent, i.e., informing the public, just proving that this exists and it doesn't do anything malicious. Um, the state prosecution will drop the case against the journalist. And so it's already okay, kind of okay in a, in a larger view of you know, justice and, 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 and society for the journalist to do something illegal to figure out 
if the story is correct. And even more, like, it doesn't matter if these things were illegally obtained. And people have usually not, like, even especially journalists, have usually never, um, like, uh, disagreed with that. You know, when the Snowden revelations came out, it was clear that this was illegal material. This was top secret material stolen from the CIA, the NSA, like, the, the 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 very slights Snowden gave to journalists are labeled confidential top secret. It is illegal under US law to copy this material if if you don't have that clearance. It was illegal for Snowden to copy it and illegal for him to give it to journalists and Ill illegal for journalists to even have it. But that doesn't matter. Nobody complained with that because it's clear that it's important for the public to know that the NSA is spying on everybody. Same here. If there was corruption by a close member of the family of a previous vice president of the US who was in the process to becoming the president now, that is important to the public, right? And these, these, this laptop shows that there there's clear implications that Biden was, like Hunter Biden was basically working with Joe Biden. Like they were, you know, it wasn't like he was just getting money and, and Joe had nothing to do with it. So the Post did the right thing. They published a story that is important for the public. And it doesn't matter that this came from hacked material. It's the same thing. This whole bullshit about this being somehow bad or illegal started with the 2016 election. There are still people to this day who think the Hillary Clinton emails were fake. They weren't fake. Those emails were from Hillary Clinton's email servers. They are authenticated in the same way that, you know, they authenticated this Hunter Biden laptop. They use the same um, te techniques. These emails are factually correct. And they, they, they constantly, even today, are deemed misinformation. They're not misinformation. There are information. They are correct. They're factual information. They're the actual emails of Hillary Clinton. They were probably obtained illegally and probably by Russian agents to hurt her campaign. But that's a political issue. That's a, you know, a, an, an issue that these intelligence services care about. As a journalist, I don't care about that. The question is, are the emails authentic? And, you know, there were leaks by WikiLeaks. Uh, WikiLeaks got these probably from Russian agents. Um, this is probably all illegal, but that doesn't matter if you're a journalist. The information, if the information is good, nothing else matters. And the information is good. So this whole bullshit about like information that journalists use to write stories being somehow discredited by where they came from, I think started in 2016 with this Hillary Clinton thing, which is really bad and is applied to this Hunter Biden laptop as well. And, you know, just to be sure, they, I, I've linked like stuff from the First Amendment Encyclopedia, an article from The Atlantic, stuff from the Digital uh, Media Law project at uh where, where was this uh is this uh, some some university that did this i've forgotten i have to look up uh the berkman center uh for uh for internet and society uh did this um so you know and this is all based on on established case law in the u.s and it's the same in the uk it's the same in germany it's the same in australia um it is cons it is again and again has been ruled that journalists are allowed to write stories based on material they know has have has been illegally um obtained and that is just because 
the press fulfills a very important role in democracy. The press is there to check the power of the state, of uh, rich people, of famous people, of influential people, of powerful people. Um, and if you if you were to impose such a restriction on the press, then it wouldn't be able to do important work, right? So Watergate's a good example. If the journalists that broke Watergate um, had to be worried whether the information they've gotten was from illegal sources, which, you know, some of the editors that squashed the story back in the day actually were, which was a huge problem. But, like, the journalists who e eventually um, got famous for breaking the story, got, like, Pulitzer Prizes and shit, they didn't care. And for good reason. They didn't care if the information was retrieved illegally because the story was important. Anyway, sorry for this sidetrack. I mean, lots of you who have been listening to the show for a long time will be like, why is he explaining this to me? This is all logical. Um, but reading reporting on the internet by journalists today uh, makes me feel that a lot of journalists don't understand that. So even before we know knew that the Hunter Biden stuff was authentic, right? the argument against it was never or very seldomly this is bullshit this is not authentic the argument was this is comes from hacked materials and that's a non-argument same with the hillary clinton emails that's a non-argument using that argument to to suppress a story by credible journalists is bullshit or anyway right if if yeah, if there has been a hack, you need to prosecute the people who hacked and who, you know, the spies and the people who are trying to influence whatever. Yes, sure. Um, if there's criminal activity, you need to investigate the criminal, like, like a po the police needs to investigate the criminal activity and the courts will have to sue, like, will have to try the people who are responsible for it. But this has nothing to do with reporting based on this. And it should, it should never have. Um, so, you know, we now know that Twitter didn't understand this, uh, and, and we know that, you know, we've talked about Vijaya Gaddy before she was, uh, she's a former executive, uh, and head of legal policy and trust at Twitter, uh, a lawyer. Um, she, uh, she took point actually on this, on, on saying we need to, you know, ban this, delete the story of Twitter, um, which is probably why Musk fired her very publicly. <laughs> Um, and she was also behind the 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 the, 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 the you know banning tr Trump's account. I've talked about this on the on the last episode on Twitter fights. And it wasn't like they decided internally that they would ban this. And it wasn't like like there were tweet people at Twitter who knew this was a bad idea, right? Um, as as Taibi uh, reports on here, uh, you can see the confusion in the following lengthy exchange, and he posts like a picture of it, uh, which extends, uh, which ends up including Getty and former Trust and Safety Chief Joel Roth. Comms official Trenton Kennedy writes, "I'm struggling to understand the policy basis for marking this as unsafe, right? Because there's no because it's a story based on hacked materials. It's not hacked material. It's not unsafe." Um, it's politically inconvenient if you're pro Joe Biden, but it's not unsafe. Um, and uh, there were people inside of Twitter who also who like 
supported this decision, but who are thinking like, how are we going to like, we're all on, on board with this. We all want the story to disappear, but how are we going to justify once once we get asked publicly about this, right? Um, so uh, former VP of Global Comms, Brandon Borman asked, can we truthfully claim that this is part of the policy? To which former Deputy General Counsel Jim Beckett, the FBI guy, again seems to advise staying the non-course because caution is var warranted. Right, but you know, I mean, that's a very FBI thing to do. Um, so interestingly, in this whole exchange, there is actually a congressman, a, a Democratic congressman, no less, um, a guy called Ro Khanna, uh, who then actually sends an email to Gaddy once Twitter has blocked this story, uh, deleted it, and is worried about uh, the, quote, backlash on the Hill uh, because of the f obvious, like, obvious free speech implication of the about this right like it's amazing to me how people inside of twitter didn't see this right that that deleting reporting by newspaper based on a idiotic idea of hacked materials would would be like a, a freedom of the press free speech civil liberties kind of issue um and uh the the the, the Gaddy and other people inside Twitter don't seem to understand this. They don't, don't seem to understand that they're doing anything wrong, right? Um, and I'm not even want to talk about if they're doing anything legally wrong. I don't know, but they clearly it's morally wrong. Um, so, so uh, Taibi writes here in one humorous exchange on day one, day one after blocking the story, deleting the story, Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna reaches out to Gaddy to gently suggest she hop on the phone to talk about the, quote, backlash re-speech. Kenna was the only Democratic official I could find in the files who expressed concern. Getty replies quickly, immediately diving into the weeds of Twitter policy, unaware Kenna is more worried about the Bill of Rights. Kenna tries to reroute the conversations of the First Amendment, um, mention of which is generally hard to find in the files. So so he goes, like, this is a problem. And, and the, the Twitter lawyer goes... Yeah, but our policy says this and that. And she's like completely unaware that he goes like, he's like, he's like, I don't give a fuck about Twitter policy. You are messing with the election. You are just, you're, you're messing with freedom of the press, right? You are, you are, um, you are sawing, you are like chiseling away on the pillar of the democratic system there. Right, I don't give a fuck what you what your company policy says. Who the fuck cares? We're talking about like uh, constitutional issues here, right? Your your company policy is just some idiot lawyer who wrote who wrote something down. Who gives a fuck? So, but they like they didn't seem to be aware of this. Like the people inside Twitter, which is amazing because at the time they're running one of the biggest and most influential platforms for public discourse in the world. This is where a large part of the discussion in the run-up of the election is happening right now. And they do not, on a fundamental level, understand free speech. Uh, quote, the First Amendment isn't absolute. Uh, Zabos, that's a Twitter guy, Zabos letter contains chilling passages relaying Democratic lawmakers' attitudes. They want, quote, more moderation, oh, this is a Democrat guy, moderation, and for, as for the Bill of Rights, it's not absolute. And what they're talking about there is, of course, the First Amendment, I've talked about this before, uh, the First Amendment applies to censorship by the state towards its citizens. And Twitter's like, oh, the First Amendment doesn't apply because we're a company, we're not beholden to this. But that doesn't mean 
that you're not doing more like right, the next step there would be okay so what you're saying is that we have laws in this country uh, for so that the government can't do a thing because it's re clearly bad maybe even evil it's clearly like disastrous to our democracy and you're arguing that okay the government can't do that but 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 private companies should be able to like what what that the first amendment is is a check on power but when the first amendment wasn't written was written you know the people writing it were thinking about the power of the state because social media companies didn't exist and they didn't imagine a world where all of the political discourse happened on the platform that was owned by a private company Right, which is why we should have the Fediverse, and I'm all for the Fediverse, you know. And I'm, 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 I, I, I predicted that it won't take off, but it does. If I prove wrong and it will take off, then you know I'm happy to be proven wrong. But like, if the First Amendment was written today, surely they would have included Twitter and Facebook in there. So, if anything, we need to change the laws. Like, if the laws don't apply correctly to the situation anymore, then we need to change the laws. But the argument can't be, hey, this doesn't apply to us because, like, think about it on, in a moral context. Of course, you're doing the same thing. Um, yeah. So, to me, this just shows how messed up Twitter was internally, right? I, You know, okay, they were all politically on the same line, but, like, even aside from that, there's like structural issues here, right? They do they do a decision like this, which is probably this decision to delete the story of the website was a historic decision. It was probably the most important decision that that has ever been and will ever be made at Twitter. And they made that without their CEO knowing about it. And they did that again and again. And you can see how broken this whole thing was by the fact or by the um by the time it took Dorsey, the then CEO to actually reverse this decision and how much trouble he had. He's the fucking CEO and founder of the thing, right? He should be, he should be, uh, well, like if he goes, no, okay, you made this decision about me. I was on holiday. All right. But now I'm back and we're changing his back right now. You can see how little power he had and how bad he was at running that company. Um, you know, probably, probably because he was like, running around the world growing hobo beards and meditating in, in, in like the Malaysian mountains or whatever he was doing. Yeah, so um, it's actually quite amazing how this decision happened um, inside Twitter, um, you know, how, how it came to this. But that is actually not the big scandal. That is actually not, that is bad enough but that is not actually the interesting thing. The interesting thing we learned through Schellenberger's reporting, uh, which just came out this week, um, which is I wanted to do the show actually last week, and I, I was almost ready to do it on the weekend. I'm really happy. Like, I couldn't and didn't have the time because now Schellenberger's thing comes out. Comes out and I would, have done, I would have to do another episode on this very topic because now we get into the actual scandal of the thing. Now we get to the involvement by the FBI. So far, we have looked at how, you know, the, the, the Twitter side of things, how they internally decided how to suppress or to suppress the story um, and how. Um, but that actually isn't that surprising, right? If you've been paying attention, uh, if you know a little bit of, about Silicon Valley, especially in recent years, uh, you kind of know 
you kind of like you suspected this like basically what came out of these twitter files this part of the twitter files is basically how i built over the last few years i built this story in my head right in my head how i built like this in my head uh, no in my head uh how i built this you know you other people call it a conspiracy theory or oh, it is a conspiracy theory because it's a story about a conspiracy inside twitter um that's that's how I thought it was, you know, based on what I knew about Silicon Valley. I knew about the dem- the, the demographics and the, the the politics of the employees at Twitter. This is what, how I would have expected it to go. And once again, a conspiracy conspiracy theory uh, turns out to be true, because there were actually was a conspiracy. Um, but except it's even worse than I think. I thought it wasn't actually a conspiracy of Twitter employees, it was an conspiracy of Twitter employees and the FBI, right? Because now we learn that apparently the FBI has taken it upon itself to catalog and censor speech, speech by private citizens, people like you and me, and not only in the US, but all over the world. Um, And this is, I mean, this is an intelligence agency who... uh, is supposed to be protecting Americans at home uh, from organized crime and terrorism. Um, but now, currently, they are policing speech. And I think this all came up, in, you know, this came out of 2016 as well, and the, the Clinton emails um, and the so-called Russian uh, misinformation. If anything, it was Russian information. Um and you know the the meddling with with the elections there. So the FBI has decided that foreign actors are influencing the election, and because of that, we need to see we need to like on mass catalog what everybody talks about on Twitter, um, and then take decisions based on that. And to do this, they've built a somewhat intro, like almost in in in, in uh, like. Oh, you can't my brain can't can't say words an ingenious system and, and certainly a very interesting system and here's what it looks like so twitter and we've known this for ages has something called the firehose right this at at the time back in the day when i joined twitter this used to be a feed there wasn't an algorithm you got all the tweets of all the people you you um you subscribe to in real time uh, but then they got a lot more users and they started using an algorithm and then the firehose went away and so then they started selling the firehose. So the firehose is actually even more than that because the firehose is all the tweets, everything that's on Twitter, like in as as real time as they can put it out. And uh, you used to have access, like if you wrote a Twitter app back in the day, that's what you would use. There was like a firehose API, right? You get that through the API. You can't do that anymore. You have to buy it. So Twitter sells this to special companies. There's a company called Data Miner, like Miner without an E at the end, kind of like Flickr. Data Miner, uh, Zero Fox, this one called Meltwater. Data Miner is probably the, the most known. So Twitter sells the firehose to these, these companies. And these companies then have contracts with the so-called intelligence community or uh, the security state uh, as greenwald calls it i kind of like that term better um and these companies they they buy the twitter firehose and then they, they then have contracts for example with the fbi like millions of dollars they get to do this um they they analyze this data and then flag things you know that the fbi or the cia or the nsa or whoever 
they have a contractor wants to know. Now, in the case of the, you know, wants to know about, so so they flag, in the case of the FBI, they sent them accounts and tweets, um, you know, flagged for certain things that the FBI told them to look for. And then the FBI uh, takes this and uh, decides to take action on some of this and then goes back to Twitter. And, you know, that's what we've seen in the Twitter files, sends them emails. And they have Elvis Chan going like, okay, so these tweets, uh, please do something about them. Um, so basically, it's a big, happy circle jerk uh, between private companies and intelligence services that, um, you know, is, is worth millions of dollars in contracts that uh, is designed to monitor speech and then censor it. Um, but it's... Um, so so we knew that. We knew that the FBI was doing that, that that was part of the Twitter files, you know, we've, that, that they were um, deleting tweets and stuff like that. But what we learn now is that not not only were they doing this and you know cataloging and censoring speech by by private citizens like us they were also they're also in the business to censor the press so as we remember they knew they had the laptop they knew what was on the laptop uh and then they learn because they are keeping tabs on giuliani they learn that Giuliani now has the laptop, has the, the, the files, and will release them to the press. Uh, so what, what does the FBI do? The FBI cooks up a scheme to, behind the scenes, influence social media companies like Twitter and Facebook and other journalists, other publications like the New York Times, um, and prime them with the idea that because this is based, like this, the story that will be coming out, which they know about, um, or they, they don't tell them that there's a story coming out, but they're telling there will be something happening. The Russians are trying to influence the elections. The R Russians are trying to um, spread misinformation. So they kind of prime the pump. They prime these journalists to be on the lookout for hacked materials that are not genuine. And because this jo these journalists have forgotten what I've explained earlier, that it doesn't matter where the information comes from, that the important thing for a journalist is to know if the material is authentic. They are now primed to look at where it comes from, rather what it actually is. Uh, and Schallenberger writes about this in his subsect that, you know, if I've linked in the show notes, private citizen the press. Um, and he writes the following. Before describing the new information, it is important to understand that Hunter Biden earned tens of millions of dollars in contracts with foreign businesses, including ones like China's government, for which Hunter offered no real work. Um, in the video above, investigative journalist Schweitzer offers an overview. And she has, has that video. Um, and yet, during all of 2020, the FBI and other law enforcement agencies repeatedly primed Twitter's head of site integrity and later head of safety and trust, Yoel Roth, to dismiss reports of Hunter's Biden laptop as a Russian, quote, hack and leak operation. FBI did the same to Facebook, according to CEO Mark Zuckerberg. And Zuckerberg actually uh, said this on Joe Rogan's podcast. Um, where the FBI warnings were the FBI warnings of a Russian hack and leak operation relating to Hunter Biden based on any new intelligence? No, they weren't. Quote, through our investigations, we did not see any similar competing intrusions to what had happened in 2018. End quote, admitted FBI agent Elvis Chan in November 2022. 
Then in July 2020, the FBI's Elvis Chan arranged, and so that guy arranged for a temporary top secret security clearance for Twitter's executives so that the FBI can share information about threats to the upcoming election. Let that just sink in, right? They gave the 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 executives of a social media company top secret security clearance. I'll talk at the end of the show, I'll talk about attempts to like discredit this whole story and, and, and talk about how the FBI and Twitter just weren't tight. That shows you how tight they were. You, you, as an intelligence officer, you do not give top secret clearance to just anybody, especially people who are contrarian, like, you know, who are like fighting you on issues. And on August 11, 2020, the FBI's Chan shares information with Twitter Throth relating to the Russian hacking organization App28 through the FBI's secure one-way communication channel Transporter. Recently, Twitter Throth uh, told tech journalist Kara Swisher, anything that Kara Swisher is involved in, I'm immediately wary about. Um, I am reminded of uh, the, I think, what's this, Apple... This is like an Apple thing where Apple was, um, where, where Steve Jobs is introducing podcasting uh, to the audience, you know, as a new feature. Um, and uh, he plays Adam Curry's Daily Source Code. And Kara Swisher is like hosting the event or something. And like she's immediately asking Steve Jobs, like, what, what are we doing about censoring people? On these and on this podcast, but that's like her first, um, <laughs> like her first instinct. Like Kara Swisher just has a hard on for censorship as far as I can. Anyway, recently Twitter's Roth uh, told tech journalist Kara Swisher that he had been primed to think about the Russian hacking group App28 before news of the Hunter by laptop came out. When it did, Roth said, "Quote: It sent off." It set off every single one of my finely tuned App28 hack and leap campaign alarm bells. In August 2020, FBI's Chan asked Twitter, does anybody there have top secret clearance? When somebody mentions Jim Baker, Chan responds, I don't know how for I forgot him. An odd claim given Chan's job is to monitor Twitter, not to mention that they work together at the FBI. Who is Jim Baker? And we talked about that, you know, a former FBI uh, guy uh, worked at CNN. Bridgewater asset management firm, the Brookings Institution. Um, Baker played the central role in making the case internally for, for an investigation of Donald Trump in the FBI. Baker wasn't the only senior FBI executive involved in the Trump investigation to go to Twitter. Don Burton, the former deputy chief of staff of FBI, had James Comey, who initiated the investigation of Trump, joined Twitter in 2019 as director of strategy. As of 2020, there were so many former FBI employees, or as they called them, Boo alumni working at Twitter that they had created their own private Slack channel and crypt cheat to onboard new FBI arrivals. Just goes to show you how tight Twitter was with the FBI. Um, and now we come to this campaign, right? So the FBI, now knowing that the story is going to break, uh, like runs a campaign to basically prime journalists and social media people in charge uh, to, 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 to reject the story when it comes out. 
Efforts continue to influence Twitter's Yoel Roth. In September 2020, Roth participated in an Aspen Institute, quote, tabletop exercise on a potential, quote, hack and dump operation relating to Hunter Biden. The goal was to shape how the media covered it and how social media carried it. The organizers Vivian Schiller, the former CEO of NPR, the former head of news at Twitter, the former general manager of the New York Times and the former chief digital officer of NBC News. Attendees included Facebook's head of security policy and the top national security reporters for the New York Times, CNN and the Washington Post. Like why as a journalist would you go to an FBI thing where they tell you how to deal with the story? What the fuck? If you're a journalist, you know, I was always amazed, and I talked about this on the show a lot, that journalists don't understand that PR people are their enemies, right? The PR people at a company, their job is to do the exact opposite than what you want to do. You want to find the facts, in air quotes, the truth. They want to make their company look good, even if that doesn't, you know, comply to the facts. It can be that it overlaps, and that the company actually looks good to the facts, but you can never be true that that's the case. So they are your enemy. Like you can never take anything as a journalist. You can never take anything a PR person says um, at face value, right? You have to work with them. You have to get information for the, from them, but you have to be very suspicious of this information. Now, okay, not understanding this about PR people is one thing, but we're talking intelligence services. We're talking professional liars. These are spies. These are spooks. These are people who lie for a living. As a journalist, you can never believe anything they say. And, and still they are put on CNN, right, as talking heads, as experts. And these people, these New York Times, CNN, Washington Post people, they go to an exercise from the FBI where the FBI is like, oh, yeah, uh, so there will be stories coming out. This is how you deal with them, right? I mean, I can understand going there to like kind of be skeptical and like kind of figuring out what they're trying to do and maybe exposing it. But these people were obviously not critical at all. So it worked. <clears throat> it worked. <coughs> Sorry, I'm not still not completely recovered. I'm doing better, but my voice is still uh, fucked in places. Anyway, it worked. Uh, as as Schoenberger writes, uh, by mid-September 2020, the FBI's Chan and Roth, uh, the FBI's Chan, and Roth had set up a special encrypted messaging network so employees from FBI and Twitter could communicate. They also agreed to create a, quote, virtual war room for, quote, all the internet plus F internet industry plus FBI and ODNI. So the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Then on September 15th, the FBI's Laura Damlow, who heads up the Foreign Influence Task Force and Chan, requested to give a classified briefing for Jim Baker without any other Twitter staff such as Joe Roth present. On October 14th, shortly after the New York Post published its Hunter Biden laptop, Roth says, quote, it isn't clearly violative of our market of our hacked materials policy, nor is it clearly in violation of anything else, but adds this feels a lot like a somewhat subtle leak operation. So that didn't he knows he knows that it's just an excuse. This 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 policy. In response to Roth, Baker repeatedly insists that the Hunter Biden materials were either faked, hacked or both and violation of Twitter policy. Baker does so over email in a Google Doc and in a Google Doc on October 14th and 15th. And yet it's inconceivable 
Baker believed the Hunter Biden emails were either fake or hacked. The New York Post had included a picture of the receipt signed by Hunter Biden and an FBI subpoena showed that the agency had t taken possession of the laptop in December 2019. So he just has to ask his FBI friends and I'm, I'm sure he knew. Um, finally, by 10 a.m., Twitter executives had, brought, had bought into a wild hack and dump story. Quote, the suggestion from experts, which rings true, is that there was a hack that ha happened separately and that they loaded the hacked materials on the laptop that mar marginally appeared, uh, magically appeared at a repair shop in Delaware, wrote Roth. At 3.38 p.m. that same day, October 14th, Baker arranges a phone call, conversation with Matthew, Matthew J. Perry in the office of the general counsel of the FBI. Guess why? Reporting back home to the mothership, probably. The FBI's influence operation persuaded Twitter executives that the Hunter Biden laptop did not come from a whistleblower, even though it did. In the end, the FBI's influence campaign aimed at executives at news media, Twitter, and other social media companies worked. They censored and discredited the Hunter Biden laptop story. By December 2020, Baker and his colleagues even sent a note of thanks to the FBI for its work. So, yeah, I mean... It, it's clear that these people were like on the like they bent over backwards for the FBI and this all worked um, because they have substandard uh, like the, in the media it worked because the media the, the journalists writing about this have, have substandard journalistic instincts right their instinct is to believe the fbi and the government rather than to look at what they say critically and at twitter they were just like so politically primed they were so in line with the political thinking within the fbi that they just bent over backwards to do this and you know i've talked about that in the previous episode what that climate was um yeah but you know To, to help things along, I don't know if it's any is connected, but, you know, Twitter was also being paid by the FBI. As Shannon Berger writes, the FBI's influence campaign may have, been, may have been helped by the fact that it was paying Twitter millions of dollars for its staff time. Quote, I'm happy to report we have collected $3,415,323 since October 2019, exclamation mark, reports an associate of Jim Baker in early 2021. Um, I don't think they did this because of the money, but we'll we'll talk about this uh, in a bit. Um, but yeah, so so what happened here is that the FBI was in possession of materials that they didn't want to see in the press because the FBI, for whatever reason, uh, was anti-Trump and they didn't want to see him re-elected so they didn't want information to come out that would hurt Joe Biden um, the argument that the FBI didn't want this information to come out because it was election interference is bullshit because the information was factual and the press reporting on things that the public cares about argue, you know, arguably needs to know about in the run-up of an election because it directly uh, impinges on a candidate in this election. So factual information, factual reporting, um, right? The, the, there is no, there's no interference. Um, and 
the FBI knew this or could have known this because if, if, if freelance journalists can easily authenticate this material, then I'm sure the FBI can. And I'm sure the FBI did. I'm sure the FBI knew that this material was real. They just decided to sit on it. Um, but not only that, that'd be one thing. Then, because they are surveilling, actually, the camp uh, they don't like in the election, they realize that this camp has now also has the information, and they prepare an operation to because they now know it will be leaked in the press, they prepare an operation to discredit the story, right? And to prepare social media companies to censor the story. This is un believable this is an intelligence agency spies taking it upon themselves to basically this is inter this this is election interference they're doing what they say the, the you know what they were always claiming the russians were doing this is election interference they they messed with freedom of the press they messed with reporting they didn't do their job because their job is to investigate criminal wrongdoing they didn't do their job they didn't investigate the signs of criminal uh you know, uh, uh, criminal uh, things that were on, on the Hunter Biden laptop. Instead, they decided to sit on it to manipulate the public's opinion. And then they went even further and openly manipulated uh, social media and, and the actual media to discredit the story. This is unbelievable to me. This doesn't sound like a government organization of a democratic state, right? This is some Stasi shit. This sounds like an, an, the secret police organization of an authoritarian state manipulating elections within that state. This is what that sounds like. I mean, not, not to mention that the other shit the FBI is doing, cataloging speech en masse and then censoring it is also Stasi shit. You know, or Gestapo shit, whatever you want to call it. I, I actually think it's more more along the lines of what the Stasi did. But um, this is this is a scandal. This is a, a a story a story of monumental, of epic proportions. And yet, it's uh, very very underreported in the press or even as we come to now um, in the last part of this episode even actively being miscredited so to me this is the biggest story in tech in 2022 easy uh, and therefore, you know, it's as pretty main to me to see how many of my colleagues, um, fellow journalists are not reporting on it. But that's one thing. There's also people who are reporting on it and are trying to explain to the public how this story is not important and there's no scandal. So I can only characterize this as running interference for, I don't know, uh, you know, the the old management at Twitter or the FBI or both. I don't know why they do it, but that's apparently um, what they're doing. I've, I've seen several of these stories. I decided to pick one out, which was, to me, the most egregious. Um, this is by uh, the founder of TechDirt, uh, Mike Masnick. Uh, TechDirt is a blog that writes on uh, technology issues. 
unsurprisingly uh to me um i'm gonna i'm gonna label this guy as a journalist right because i don't know if he thinks of himself as a journalist for for some reason some bloggers don't uh but you know what he's doing uh is journalism even though it's bad journalism so just to explain that so i'm gonna i'm gonna label him uh as, as a journalist here but um so he basically wrote a debunking story where he's basically saying oh there's nothing going on there's no scandal here nothing to see here move move on basically and uh you can already tell that the story is bullshit because he start well it starts with sigh but basically the story starts with look and i have this rule i've had it for a while i think it's originated with john c dvorak but i'm not sure Anybody who starts anything, like when they talk to me, who start who start going, look, and then explain something to you, you almost always know they're full of shit. Because like this is in, this incredibly condescending way of going, look, already tells me that they're not taking me seriously. Um, and often the, their approach is just like they they will they're just deluded. I uh, like this guy, right? So uh, he says, so. Elon Musk tweeted about the news Challenberger stuff and he said like, look, the FBI was paying Twitter to censor. I'm not, I don't think that's what Challenberger was saying and that's problematic, but it's Elon Musk, so no no surprise here. Uh, but the Mike Masnick decided to take this dumb tweet by Musk as an excuse to explain to us, well, this whole story is not a story. The problem is that once again, that's not what the Twitter files show. So, so, you know, the FBI paying, paying uh, Twitter to censor. Even as the report is working on it, Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, and Michael Schellenberger either don't understand what they're looking at or are deliberately misrepresenting it. I'm no fan of the FBI and I've spent much of the two and a half decades here tech.criticizing tech criticizing it. But there's literally no scandal here. Or if there is one, it's something entirely different, which we'll get to at the end of the article. What the file shows is that the FBI would occasionally, not very often, frankly, using reporting tools, use reporting tools to alert Twitter to accounts that potentially violated Twitter's rules. When the FBI did so, it was pretty clear that it was just flagging these accounts for Twitter to review and had not exp had no expectation that the company would or would not do anything about it. Now, all right. This is an idiotic take. First of all, we're talking about the FBI here. I don't think I've ever seen a single letter of the FBI ever in my last, I don't know, uh, 20 years that I've been looking at the news with somewhat of the eyes of a journalist, only a professional journalist for 10 years. But like, you know, I think since about September 11th, I've been very critical of the press. And ever since I've been analyzing this kind of thing. And I've never seen a letter by the FBI uh, that was written with no expectation of anything, anybody doing anything about it. That's not what the FBI is about. If the FBI sends you a letter, they expect you to do something. They will, or they will straight up order you to do something. But the FBI um, doesn't put out information just like that. Right? Anything they put out is with a very clear goal. They're an intelligence service. They're in the job of manipulating people, and that's what they're doing. Um, first of all, uh, Masnick claims that the uh, you know uh, that that the FBI wasn't doing this very often, flagging this stuff, um, which is something he can't know 
because he doesn't have access to the Twitter files. He's saying that based on the reporting by T.A.B. Weiss and Schellenberger, which is a take you can have. It's a take, but he's trying to prove it. And he can't because he's just looking at what they have been reporting um, and he doesn't have the raw information. So he can't, like, he doesn't, he has no way of knowing even in the limited access they have or, you know, whatever access they have to the data, how often the FBI has asked Twitter. He, do, he simply doesn't know. So that's that's faulty logic. Uh, and then, you know, even more idiotic, I wonder, does he actually, like, how dumb does he think his readers are? Does he actually expect us to believe that the FBI, we're talking about an intelligence service, we're talking basically about a secret police organization that has immense powers, some of them I would claim are extra constitutional or, you know, sometimes these get, you know, constitutionalized because they just uh, influence legislature and then you have like, the, you know, the, the Patriot Act and stuff like that. But like, um, but I would, what I mean by extra constitution, I think in the spirit of the constitution as the US constitution as originally written, things like detaining people uh, with no uh, you know the Bill of Rights, something like that. you know, uh, detaining people without any uh, having to prove any wrongdoing for you know basically unlimited amounts of time. Uh, I don't think are, are in the spirit of the Constitution, but anyway. So we're talking about this. We're talking about a, a secret police organization, an intelligence agency. He expects us to believe that they were just just flagging in air quotes tweets, and that they had no expectation Twitter would do anything about this. I mean. The, what we've seen, what Schellenberger, Taibbi, and, 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 and Weiss have shown us is that Twitter did comply in a lot of these cases. Uh, and, and, and the ones we've seen, they were extremely servile, one would even say submissive in doing so. Joel Roth is not like really standing up to the FBI. I mean, there are some cases where he doesn't do what the FBI tells him. And there are you know some emails that they've shown, but generally he's 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 very submissive, right? He's he's basically doing what his masters at the FBI want him to do. Um, but you know, to me that is not because he's afraid of the FBI. Because we talked about this, he's he's politically in line with. He thinks the FBI is doing. He needs to help the FBI because the FBI is helping democracy. But that doesn't change the fact that that he's very servile. Um, Anyway, um, this tech dirt dude goes on. Um, now, we could have an interesting discussion, and I actually think it's an interesting discussion, about whether or not the government should be flagging accounts to review as terms of service violation. Yeah, for once. Right now, anyone can do this. You or I can go to Twitter, and if I see something and we think it or if we see something and think it violates a content policy, we can flag it for Twitter to review. Twitter then will review the content and determine whether or not it's violative. I hate that word. And uh, will determine whether or not it's violative, and then decide what we uh, what the remedy should be if it is. So what he's saying in his story is that if you or me, a private citizen, a fab from Düsseldorf goes through Twitter support and flags a tweet, then that is handled in the same way that if the ASAC, the assistant special agent in charge for San Francisco, where Twitter's headquarters is, Elvis Chan, uses established back channels, established back channels to high-level executives. So basically, Joe Roth, the guy who's the head of the department who is in charge of this, 
then that's handled the same way? Are you fucking kidding me? How can anybody who works as a journalist be this deluded? Like, he's either deluded or he's dumb. I don't think he's dumb because he's written some technically uh, very good stories on, on TechDirt. I think he's just completely deluded. He's, like, in the same mindset than these tw Twitter people were. Like, I mean, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck? Like, how can you write... Like, how deluded do you have to be to assume this? That, like, me writing an email to Twitter is the same then in a high-level FBI guy writing to, like, a high-level Twitter guy that they're cordial with, you know, that that's the same thing. I don't even... Uh, he continues, if there were evidence that there was some pressure, coercion or compulsion for the company to comply with the government request, that would be a different story. But to date, there remains none, at least in the US. Dude, of course not. I mean, he's he's right. He, he's right that there's no evidence in that in, in the Twitter files that we've seen. But you're not thinking about this critically, man. You're not thinking about this journalist. Like, why would there be? We've seen these Twitter files show again and again that the employees of Twitter were in line with the FBI politically. They wanted to do this. Like, even without FBI influence, we see in the Twitter files how they are discussing how Trump needs to be banned, how this, this story needs to appear, disappear, how accounts need to be blocked. They've built this whole visibility filtering about this. They believe in this. They believe in this censorship. There are, they're on the same side with the FBI, and they think this is a good thing. They think this is the right thing to do. It's that old, like, are we, you know, uh, Mitchell, Mitchell and Webb sketch. Are we, the, are we the bad guys? Right? These guys, they think what they're doing is right. So the FBI didn't have to threaten them. They didn't have to coerce them because they started with just being very nice and friendly and sending them emails and, and, and Twitter just very servile and very quickly fulfilled these requests. Why would you have to threaten anybody if that works, right? So what, 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 uh, I forgot his name again. What's this guy? Like, I have to remember his name because I can never take any story he's written ever again for, 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 for anything. Uh, like, I can never take any of this seriously. This Masnick guy, right? What he doesn't understand is that the FBI in this case isn't treating Twitter like it treats other companies or other people. It's not treating them like a law enforcement agency would treat somebody who's a suspect in a crime or who's accessory to a crime or who they need to get information out of in a criminal investigation, right? They are treating these high-level people within Twitter like a an intelligence service would treat agents. And I'm not meaning like special agents in the, as agents, as spies, like they're handling these people. They're, they're the handlers. The FBI people are the handlers of the Twitter people. They have manipulated them into doing what they want them to do because they think it's right. right? This is proper, this is normal, like standard tradecraft. If you read about, you know, I'm a James Bond fan, so I've read, written lots of books about, uh, uh, read, read, I've read 
I wish. I read lots of books uh, about espionage, you know, by people who've been in the business who write about how this works. Most of it is Cold War stuff, but like it's this is how you get agents. Like this is how you um, get spies, how you get them to do what you want, right? If you are MI6 and you uh, rec are recruiting an agent in Soviet Russia uh, to, to spy on the government, to get information on the Soviets, right? You, you are manipulating people or you're looking for people who already don't agree with the regime, who are in a, high, in a level, in a, in a position where they can help you, where they can manipulate things, where they can give you information, who already, like, don't agree with this situation or whatever. Or you, you, you manipulate them into thinking they're doing the right thing. You can do it by, like, blackmailing them, right? If they just go, like, you know, it's classical CIA. You set up, like, a hotel room. Like, you, you get a politician in there with a, with a prostitute. Then you film them. And then, you you know, you, you got some, uh, some, some materials on them, right? You have some, I for, forgot what the name was. What is it? Uh, Kompromat is what the Russians used to call it. Kompromat. Um, the KGB used to do this as well. Um, you... You know, and then you can coerce them. But it's actually better if these people are doing what they're doing because they believe in it. They're and they're much better spies, and this is your 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 preferred way of going about it. So the FBI is just this is just tradecraft. If they don't have to coerce these people, right? If they can manipulate them into thinking what they're doing is the right thing, then it's even better. And that's what they're doing. That's what this guy doesn't understand. And then also what he does is because Musk tweeted this thing about Schellenberger's reporting, which is not in Schellenberger's report. Schellenberger, at the end of his thread and of his story, throws in the F the FBI gave Twitter money as kind of a offhanded thing. And what he's trying to do there, I think, is trying to show how, how tight the FBI and Twitter were. But he's not saying that they paid them for censorship. And I don't think he, he thinks that. But Musk said that. And because Musk, who's an idiot sometimes... Um, as I've been maintaining for decades, um, said that uh, this 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 uh, Masnik guy uses this to discredit the whole story, right? So he then goes about how this isn't an influence campaign and they didn't pay them about um, censorship. Basically, what he says, all the stuff's in the show notes, by the way, private citizen press. If you want to read through it yourself, think for yourself, by God, please. Um, but, you know, he, what, what what he says is that, and this is true, the FBI is a is also when they're not manipulating uh public opinion what their actual job is is fighting crime and being uh, an uh, uh, investigative agency so what they do is they will get secret courts to sign subpoenas and 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 data requests that they give to companies like twitter where they will get information on suspects which is completely legal and they pay twitter and other companies for this they they pay them uh, for the expense of complying with these requests. And that's where um, Masnik says this money comes from. This is where the three million that Schellenberger talks about come from. He might be right. I think it might be. That might be true. I don't know. He doesn't know. Uh, he doesn't, you know, he's just assuming that. So he's not even, he's not even, like even if Schellenberger had claimed that this money was for 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 censorship, he wouldn't even disproving that because he does he doesn't know, you know he doesn't have information so he's not debunking that. Um, but on top of that, Schellenberger didn't say that. Musk said that. Who who cares about that? We care about the actual reporting. 
So basically what Masnek's doing is run, he's running interference for the fans, right? Even if everything he says in, in this thing is right, and, you know, even if we assume that, it doesn't change the fact that the FBI is mass cataloging speech and censoring people and censoring the press. That is the scandal. I mean, what is like how how ideological like does the guy just like Twitter is he just a Democrat? How ideologically um b- Oh, how brainwashed have you? Do you have to be? Like, I understand if normal people are just like, but the guy's a journalist. The guy's job is to look at information and think about it critically. But apparently, he's not able to do that. Uh, he also wrote a story, by the way, about the Hunter Biden laptop, uh, which I, his take is basically, uh, even if that's all factual, and even if the story is factual. Uh, you can't blame Twitter from censoring it because at the time uh, it was unclear it was from hacked materials, right? So he completely ignores that A, the the information was factual, that B, it's com- we talked about this, it's completely legal for the press to publish material based on illegal information, that C, there was no hacked materials and people within Twitter, you know, the, the, the people who made the decisions were aware of the fact that this story did not fall under this hacked materials policy because there were no hacked materials in it. It was based on allegedly hacked materials, but like you can't defend Twitter by saying they just did what, like, it's so wrong on so many levels. Like, if it, even if it would fit under, it would have fitted under Twitter's hacked material policy, it's still wrong to censor the press because your terms of service say something, you know, that's wrong. That's morally wrong. That's like on a societal scale. This idiot, you're doing the wrong thing. I don't know. I don't care if you apply by your, uh, adhere by your own company rules. That is wrong. But even that was the case, wasn't the case because it didn't fall under the policy. So it's like wrong on so many levels. And he defends it. Like this guy's an idiot. I can't. I can never read anything. I can never take anything on Tech Dirge seriously ever again because the editor in chief is incapable of crit. He doesn't know how journalism works. He doesn't know like journalists are beholden to their readers. They're beholden to the public. You, you guys listening to the show, I work for you. I do what I do here for you. I don't do it for the government. I'm not beholden to the government. I'm not beholden to anybody. Like, I work for you. My allegiance is to you. It's not to the government. It's not to the state, not to anybody. That's not what journalists do. Uh, the, the guy doesn't understand that. He also doesn't, yeah, he doesn't understand who the journalists should listen to. You don't, you listen to your, like, your, your focus is on, does the public need to know this? Do they want to know this? Should they know this? It's not about what's the government think about this or what does an intelligence agency think about this? He also apparently doesn't understand what an intelligence service does, uh, what the FBI's job is. Um, it's just horrific. <laughs> it's horrific. Uh, sad, sadly, these days, he's in a majority, pretty much everywhere. I mean, I just picked out this one example, but there are many, many of my colleagues who think like this. 
today, right now, if you're a journalist, it seems to be more important to be on the right side of a, you know, on, 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 every, on any given story, there seems to be a politically divide, like a political divide on that story. And it seems to be more important to be on the right side of that divide, like on the side of justice and freedom and truth or whatever, than to look at the story, think about it critically, think your own thoughts in your own head about this, and report on what you see. To me, that's the job of a journalist. And a journalist can be wrong. That post story could have been wrong. It's a fucking yellow press outfit. It could have been wrong. But that's not the point. We don't censor the press because a story could have been wrong. Or because it comes from illegal material. Anything. Any story. When you think about journalism and you think about good journalist and you think about the stories that have won, won Pulitzer Prizes or shouldn't ha should have or whatever any piece of reporting in the last hundred years that you think is important would not have come about if journalists cared about these kind of things right if they, if they cared about if something is right or if like if it's politically um, comfortable or whatever they think All of these stories have come about because journalists didn't care where the information came from. They cared about if it was factually correct and if it was important for the public. Right? That That's how Watergate was reported. That is how Snowden was reported. This is how atrocities in, in uh, the U.S. Uh, wars in Afghanistan and in Vietnam were reported. Um, that is how stuff in Ukraine that you know, is important, is reported right now. This is how the Cum-X stuff was reported. Um, any topic you can think of. Um, and the problem is that these people, they, and by these people, I mean like the majority of journalists right now, they look at the story and the first thing they look at is, does this fit into the worldview we have established right now, right? And this worldview is uh, Donald Trump and Elon Musk are evil. The planet is being destroyed by climate change. Uh, petrol cars are evil, you know, and there's a hundred other things, but these are just the things I, uh, I have concentrated on recently. Like they have this worldview and they, the first thing they do is like, does the story fit in there? This is not how you do good journalism we are our society i shit you not i am now almost 40 years old i've very ma i've many gray hairs in my beard i think i'm now allowed to say this we are going to hell in a handbasket only this the the shit i've seen in the last 20 years it's getting worse and worse people can't think critically anymore journalism journalists don't know how their job works um These, these checks and balances that we need in our democracy are falling apart. And if we're lucky, like in some of these situations where these people have I mean, collectively in a Borg hive mind way have decided that certain things are the way they are, um, if, if they're going the right way, then yeah, 
we don't have a problem, right? If 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 climate change really is the issue and that's the problem and and we concentrate on that reporting, then you know, of course, there will be good stories and right stories in that. But like the problem is that every bad thing that happens that doesn't fall within these political battle lines because the wrong person figured it out or because the wrong people who are all like in league with Nazis or whatever are reporting on this. It doesn't matter what the, these people don't care about what the facts are. They just care about, is this politically uh, within what we want to believe? It's, it's, it's horrible. And it's like, you know, filter bubbles on social media are, um, are a big part of this. And we, we see how these are built. Like we, we see Twitter here building, a, a global like not only do we have the filter bubbles who are like journalists who are just on one side of the political spectrum or just reading the shit they're like peers are writing and they're just deluded and it that goes for the right the left the middle any anywhere right they're just deluded because they're in this filter bubble no no we actually have a a, a worldwide filter bubble where on the basis we on the on the on the level of the whole network the people running the thing are also deciding oh this can't be seen like this this information cannot be uh disseminated based on what an intelligence agency says i mean i there're not enough hands in the world for me to like facepalm it, it is it is horrific there, there's there, 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 there's only one thing we can do I am to misbehave right the show has been very long and I need to get it out to you so there's no feedback in this episode, which you know, I mentioned before. Um, if everything goes according to plan, I will deliver you a, a whole feedback episode very shortly. I would just like uh, to say that I welcome your feedback and all of this. Please write me. You can use the forum. You can email me. There's many ways. Uh, there's a whistleblower contact form uh, that you can use if you want to be um, anonymous. So please go to privatecitizen.press. Uh, go to the contact link or to producer feedback in any of the show note pages and, and let me know. Right? Let let me know what you think. If you support the show uh, and you think what I'm doing is is, is important, um, then I can only urge you to, um, you know, give me feedback on one hand. That's very important, but also support it monetarily. There are many ways to do so. Um, the uh, best way for me is Patreon because that's kind of like subscription. I can kind of depend on that a little bit and I can allocate time. Um, for this show um, and I can kind of justify to myself you know as a freelancer that I'm not doing anything else I could be making money on while I prepare the show and why I uh, record the show and so yeah 
um, I, I urge you to uh, help out if you can. But if you don't, or if you don't want to, that is fine. Uh, I don't want to guilt you into anything, especially right now. It's Christmas time. Uh, we probably all spend our money already, so that's all all okay. Um, but I just wanted to mention it because it's very important to me. And I would like to thank the people who have made this episode possible um, by providing me with money uh, to justify my time. So uh, thanks to Sergal Taran, Rodain the Insane, Steve Hose, Butterbeans, Michael Small, 1i11g, Jaroslav Lichtblau, Jonathan M. Hitai, Michael Mullen Jensen, Dave uh, Sandman616, Jackie Plage, IKN, Ben Piata, Rizal, IndieGamiax, Avis, Vlad, Joe Poser, Dirk Didi, Kai Siersch, David Potter, Cam, Mika Amis Ramish, Robert Forster, Krunkel, Captain Nakat, RJ Tracy, Rick Bragg, Ricky M, Astral C, Barry Williams, Jonathan, Superuser, D, Florian Pigorsch and also Johan Sonen. And thanks to all my Twitch subscribers. I know I'm not streaming right now, but uh, well, I haven't been streaming for a while, but still, um, you're helping out as well. Thanks to Mike the Dane, Jonathan for 747, MTE Sorrow, Galteran, El Terrestris Jim, P. Kimer, Mode 7's Unavailable, Redeemer F, and Stupid End User. And also thanks to ByteMark at ByteMark.co.uk, a British cloud hosting company. They've provided me with servers and bandwidth uh, for free for years and uh, enabled me to do these shows. I'm I'm very thankful to ByteMark. Um, yeah, that's it for me for this episode. Um, we uh, I'm going to play us out. But uh, first of, uh, of course, the uh, show theme is called Acoustic Roots by Ruru Kavazali. And uh, licensed that um, from him. And uh, all the other music and sound effects are mostly licensed from Epidemic Sound, including the song I'm going to play you out with. And that's a song uh, <laughs> fittingly titled Power Grab by uh, Sven Carlson, uh, which we're going to listen to now. And I'll see you soon. Um, there'll be another episode before Christmas, I'm pretty sure. So, um, yeah. See you soon. Aim to misbehave. And don't do what the FBI tells you to do. <laughs>